This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Ty Mitchell, a writer and former gay porn performer based in Brooklyn, New York. He's written for The New Inquiry and BuzzFeed, and you can read his newsletter, The First Openly Gay Book Club, at firstopenlygay.substack.com. Ty, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Am I the big mood or the little mood in this equation? That is entirely up to you. You tucked your shirt in today, so you came correct. Which one would you like to be? I think that makes me the little mood. Then we, you can be the petite mood if you want. You can be the... The, the, the little, little, little mood. Little the mood. chic mood. Little mood. Yeah. And I will be the robust mood. We were just before <laughs> we started recording the show talking about uh, like the most important kinds of compliments we can get because I have a shirt on that usually if I'm walking past like a butch who works in a kitchen out on her smoke break, if she sees it, she says to me, nice shirt. And that's my brass ring. Is there like a particular level of either people who work in kitchens, types of lesbians, fill in the blank, where if you get a compliment from them, you know that you're doing well that day? If I get a compliment from a lesbian on anything, I know I'm doing things right. It, wow. It, it okay. Be. So just any lesbian in any capacity. I feel, feel like I get a lot of tattoo compliments from people I don't know, actually. That's the most common, especially like when I'm at bars. I'll, if I get a tat compliment, I'm like, it's weird because I can also get tat compliments from straight guys. It's this weird way that straight men like to like diffuse the situation. It, well, no, it's weird because it's like straight. It's like, it's funny when I re- realize that straight men are capable of talking about other men's bodies without sexualizing them. <laughs> and like, that's just what's happening. It's just as simple as that. They're remarkably <laughs> complex creatures. <laughs> Famously. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's really, really beautiful. I, um, I have a couple of tattoos of the type that we sometimes call job stoppers that sometimes get in the way of a tattoo compliment. Like I have some of the pretty ones that look nice and people say, oh, that's a nice tattoo. And then they get to the stop your dad or abolish fatherhood on my wrists. And we sometimes have a strange moment where where the moment turns. But once I did that, they're the only, they're the only tattoos I've never gotten a compliment on. No one has ever said, hey, nice stop your dad tattoo. Really? Not even not even the butches? Not, I mean, I think if anything, it's a little bit like people, t- it, it takes a minute to sort of sink in. And like, if anyone is on board with the sentiment, maybe they are slightly taken out of the moment and think about their own fathers and it's not a good moment. And so they just have to sort of go process. Like, this is a pure speculation. They're not on just my job part, stopper but... tattoos. They're, they're trigger tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of like, I was getting it at the time when my friend was talking me down from kill your dad and fuck your dad. So um, I, I was in a, I was in a place, I was in a location when I got these. And so I maybe wasn't thinking very far in advance about um, who the likeliest type of people might be to respond to those. But right. um, that's, at that's any what rate, my mother used to say, if you're going to do it, I'd rather you tattoo it on your body. <laughs> she sounds like a wise woman, and I hope very much that you channel her spirit today. Um, I would love it if you would read our very first letter. Okie doke. Subject is Judge Judy. I'm a gay man in my late 20s, and I've had the same small group of friends since college. One of these friends, X, is gorgeous, charming, and a serial liar. He's cheated on many of his partners and frequently insults others. If anyone calls him on it, he says he's joking. 
I've tried to talk to him about why he does these things, but he will not discuss the idea of changing his behavior. He's only ever responded by talking about how difficult his life has been. Six months ago, I realized that he wasn't a good friend to have and broke things off with him. My other college friends said that they agreed with my reasons for ending the friendship, but that they felt it was between myself and X and did not concern them. Recently, it came to light that X has been cheating on his current partner. I found myself filled with anger that my friends continue associating with someone who betrays others over and over. It feels like they are co-signing his behavior. When I think it over, though, I'm conflicted. I don't want to play into cancel culture or the cut toxic people off mindset. It's not like they're holding X accountable, though. He refuses to talk about any of it. Is it judgmental to think that X's bad behavior reflects badly on our friends in common? How do I talk to them about this without using ultimatums? How how accurate would you say that this subject line is? Like, do you think that this person is being a judge duty, or do you think that there's like a, a real kernel of like important truth? Um, I think that calling people or getting called judgmental is maybe a way of skirting another kind of conversation about like what are our shared values? Mm. Like, what are our share? Do we share a moral or ethical compass and? I think increasingly, culturally, it's hard to sustain close relationships where those things conflict, especially with people with whom you are bonded, not by mutual interests or by that ethical compass, but by the accident of going to the same college. You know, I'm sure among other things that brought them together, since it's not like you're friends with your whole college. And I think that's like maybe what's at issue here is like, I think this person realized that they don't share, there's an untenable conflict of like values between uh, their self and um, X. Um, And now they're questioning if that conflict of values extends to the rest of the people in this friend circle. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's useful to think about, I want to talk to my friends about this and I want to do it in a way that avoids ultimatums. I think partly that's important because the letter writer, I think is already aware they don't have a lot of power here to force a, a change. So there's that real meaningful question of, I really can't make everyone talk to X about this. I can't even make them all agree that this is like, genuinely bad behavior. So maybe part of the fear there is I don't have the power to cancel anybody, maybe even if I would like to. And so how do I have this conversation in a way that's not just about, hey, I want you to do something, you say no, I give up. Um, And then also that question of like, how do I talk about my concerns without making my other friends feel like I'm saying you are responsible for, you know, this guy cheating on his partners and you're bad as a result. So I I think that is a useful goal to have because I think, A, you're not going to be able to successfully pull off an ultimatum here and and B, it, it probably wouldn't be super useful. I think, you know, the insulting people stuff sounds really complicated. I could imagine that the cheating stuff is even more complicated because there's lots of people who would feel like, of course, this doesn't reflect on me if somebody's cheating on their partners. Like, it sucks, but I don't necessarily feel like it's incumbent upon me to say, no, 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 you know, you must never cheat or else you and I can never be friends. Yeah, it's like there's two, th- there's two, there's the cheating for me is like, you know, it's kind of none of your business, but the fact that this person's also an asshole who insults people and then writes it off as a joke is like a good reason to say like, I can't be friends with you anymore. If you continue to like act like this, it sucks. It sucks being friends with you. But I think it's a question of like how many degrees of separation from 
bad behavior is also bad behavior, you know? And I think it's, I think it's like a valid question, but I, I do maybe I'm, you know, projecting more than I should onto the, the caller writer, but I do get an overwhelming undertone that this person may be growing away from a group of friends that came from an institution that's not predicated on like shared values, you know, and that's okay. It's okay to grow away from a group of people on that basis. And I don't know if they think you're judgmental because of it, then I kind of think that that's neither here nor there. I don't know. As somebody who has lived many lives and gone through many different circles of friends and, you know, I feel pretty much fine about it. (laughs) Yeah. I I think the sort of question here is, what do you want and expect from your other friends? Uh, And I think that's going to be a useful thing to sort of dial into before you think about whether or not you want to proceed with having difficult conversations. Um, And and part of that question might involve, you know, do you judge them for not speaking up more strongly to your former mutual friend X? Um, I I hope that you can give them some grace, some leeway. Uh, Not everybody in, you know, seeks out conflict with their friends, especially in their late 20s. And the fact that they're not having a sort of come to Jesus conversation with him about cheating on his, like, it sounds like pretty short-term partners, I don't think rises to the level of, you know, you must stop being friends with them. They're, they're being terrible people. Um, but, you know, think through, does it hurt my feelings when they say, hey, we get why you stopped being friends with him, but that's as far as it goes? Does that make me feel left out? Does that make me feel a little crazy? Like they're saying, yeah, you had good reasons, but we don't give a shit. Like, does that make me feel like they're just saying something to placate me, um, but they don't actually think that I had good reasons? And I I wonder if maybe that's what some of the anger is, is in addition to like, I can't control X's behavior. He does keep cheating on his boyfriends and I really want him to stop. There's also that sense of, well, if you think I had good reasons, but you're not talking to him about any of this and you're continuing to hang out with him, makes me feel a little nuts. And, uh, you know, part of that could just be they genuinely see multiple angles. Maybe they kind of think you overreacted, but they don't want to say anything to you. Maybe they really disagree and they're just avoiding conflict with both you and X. I don't know what the full story there is, but I think maybe the best thing for you to do is kind of figure out what do I actually want from my friends? Like, not necessarily what do I think I'm going to get, but just do I actually want them to say, you know, not only were you right, but he's really doing wrong things and I'm just afraid to call him out? Like, would that make you feel better if somebody just said, I agree with you, but I'm scared of him? Or would that make you feel worse? Um, Would it make you feel better if someone said, actually, I did try to talk to him about it, didn't go well, and now I don't see him very much? Would that feel okay to you? Or would that feel like they were uh, going along to get along in a way that you couldn't countenance. Um, Do you want to have a fight with your friends about them being friends with X? Like these are all, I think, useful, worthwhile questions, not because I think they're going to guarantee that you'll get what you want out of them, but because it will clarify what kinds of conversations you might want to have with them about X. Um, But if fundamentally you feel like you would not be able to stay really close with people who were really close with him, then I think that is probably a sign that whatever you decide to say to them about this, you should also be looking to expand your circle of friends to include other people who don't know this guy um, so that you're not, you know, torching your only social circle. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that if you do decide to, you know, approach your friends more about it, maybe the infidelity stuff is not the best way to lead with that. And maybe the fact that this person is insulting and degrading or 
you know, is, you know, I think it's a question of like, is it work to maintain a friendship? And where is that work coming from? And if the work is coming from the other person, you should identify what that work is and and why, you know, and instead of like, you know, I think with the infidelity thing, it's like, he's not really creating work for you by um, cheating on his partner unless you're seeing that partner all the time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think this person's creating work for you if he's insulting you and degrading you and can't be held accountable for it. Yeah, you know, I think that's really useful. I, I think this is genuinely tricky. You know, uh, I, I'm really curious, like, if your other friends feel, I, I don't know what an example of these insults look like. I mean, I can guess, but like, one person's frequent insult is another person's fun bitchiness, um, or it can be fun bitchiness until it turns on you or someone you care about, and then you might have a different uh, way of looking at it. So maybe if you do talk to your friends about this, you could ask them what they think of these frequent insults because it's possible that you find them like really upsetting and other people have said, I find it sometimes light and silly. Um, or I don't think it's that big a deal. And that might hurt to hear because you don't experience it that way, but it would at least be useful information when it comes to trying to figure out, is there common ground here? But beyond that, you know, if if he refuses to talk about any of it, do you feel like it is then incumbent upon the rest of your friends to force him to talk about it? Or if they can't force him to all denounce him at the same time? And if that's not a goal or an expectation that you do have, Think about what you do. And maybe that's, I want to see some of these people one-on-one, but not talk about X at all. And maybe it's see them very rarely. I, I, I really don't know, but I think that that would be then your next move is to figure out what kind of relationship with them can I imagine that doesn't have anything to do with this guy. Like that really takes seriously the prospect of, I ended my friendship with him. I'm no longer worrying about controlling or managing his behavior. It's a shame that he doesn't act in the way that I think is best, but I really have tried my level best to change it. I can't. I'm going to truly let that not be my problem anymore. And if you can see your way to spending time with these people outside of seeing them as proxies for continuing to try to manage X's behavior, then I think there's a good chance you can continue to stay friends in the future. And, you know, I also hope you don't hold all your friends to the standard of, like, obviously there's a difficult line because sometimes it's really important to use your social networks to, like, monitor or change somebody else's bad behavior. But there's also a certain level of just, like, people sometimes cheat on their partners. People are sometimes bitchy. People are sometimes rude. And it's not necessarily everybody else's, like, um, moral slate is going to get dinged if they don't stop them. That's great advice. I, 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 got, I don't have anything to add to that, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think to whatever extent you can, try to be gentle with the friends who are maybe a little afraid to be harsh with a guy who's gorgeous, charming, and super bitchy. Or don't find it to be as much work, you know? Don't find it to be worthwhile. And yeah, and I think that that's like, you have a different, you have a unique relationship with each person that you have a relationship with by virtue of being you. Um, and you do have to, I think at a certain point, respect that other people's relationships with this person are different from your relationship with this person. Um, like, like Danny said, it's like, it does seem like you need to find ways to either engage with this group of friends separately from this person and, or cultivate other kinds of relationships that have nothing to do with this person. Cause it's obviously, I think probably painful to like still have all of this kind of resentment and frustration toward this person and have them even come up. Yeah. And I think, you know, that question about, is it just uh, unavoidable that 
this guy's bad behavior reflects badly on our friends in common. I think the question there that you can ask yourself is, do I feel like this is not their best quality that they haven't been able to like truly yell at this guy sufficiently that he stops? Or do I think it's indicative of as a group, they have a lot of qualities that I actually really dislike? Because if it feels mm. like this is actually a part of a bigger problem, I feel like they're all really conflict avoidant and they just have values that I no longer share. That's maybe a sign that you want to invest a little less time in trying to change them and a little more time in looking for new kinds of friends. But if it feels like actually this is just sort of like one area that's not their best and in other ways they're remarkable friends and I really want to prioritize those relationships, then maybe there's more room for having one or two more kind of clarifying conversations saying, you know, I hope that you do challenge him the next time he says something really shitty to someone you care about, but I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I'm not going to keep hammering this point home. You figure that one out on your own time and we will like focus on our friendship in other areas of our lives. Then I think that would be the best way forward. Um, don't necessarily say that this is the one definitive thing about them is that they have failed to sort of like corral this one guy. And I guess worst case scenario, nobody does anything, but he will someday be less gorgeous and maybe then people will start calling him out. Um, and so you can sort of psychically hope for that day. I love this next one because I think it's not necessarily the case, but I think it is sometimes the case that polyamory can really help people never have to go through a breakup again uh, if they just hate difficult conversations. And they could just like, oh, I'll just put this relationship on a different back burner and do this a thousand times. Um, and hopefully no one will ever have to break up. And part of me admires that. And part of me is eager to knock that little sandcastle down. So I'm, I'm excited for this one. And I think it's my turn to read. So I will. Mm -hmm. The subject is, am I just avoiding a breakup? I'm in my mid-20s and have a long-term partner. We have a solid relationship, but we have some significant incompatibilities around sexuality and future plans that mean we probably won't be together forever. I consider my partner my only real family and my closest friend. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about opening the relationship. I feel comfortable breaking this up, but before I do, I want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm partly worried I just want to open things up to avoid the hard choice of breaking up and starting over by myself, and partly worried that I might find someone else I want to be with all the time and then break up anyway. Another part of me is afraid that the only reason I feel the need for additional partners is because I struggle to make close friends. If my current partner isn't fulfilling every single one of my relationship needs, but I'm happy overall and value having them in my life, wouldn't it be a good thing to find other partners who can then fill in some of those gaps? I'm not 100% certain that I would enjoy being polyamorous, and I don't feel the need to start dating other people immediately. I would just want to discuss how it might work for us. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, this letter writer also mentioned in like a PS that they're already in therapy, so they were just like, don't, don't say therapy. So don't say therapy. I was not going to prescribe therapy. I, I mean... I'm, I don't, I don't want to be dismissed. I mean, this is real. It's like when you're in a intimate relationship long-term, it's really hard to change up your whole life, you know? But I think this might be a case of, an, of if you have to ask. <laughs> I'm glad that you feel that way because I think I'm leaning slightly more towards the other one. So this is good. We're going to have multiple options. Okay, let me start by saying, I think that opening up your relationship to fix problems in your current relationship is 
you know, a lot like going to grad school because you're bored. I think it's just like not, it's a, it's a, it's a negative reason. It's, it's predicated on, um, wanting to make something go away rather than wanting to add something to your life, I think. And I, I, I realize that that's maybe a dicey way to, uh, to put it because I think that it's completely normal and for relationships to be, not a hundred percent fulfilling of all your needs. I actually don't think your intimate, your one relationship should fulfill all of your needs. Um, I think that's why we have friends. I think that's why we have chosen family. I think that's why we have community is to fulfill, to have many different people in our lives fulfilling our needs. And it sounds like this person doesn't have that and that this, you know, person would probably benefit more from opening up their life to all kinds of close relationships that aren't necessarily polyamorous sexual and romantic relationships. And that that actually might be a better way to proceed than to tack on, you know, than to go kind of all or nothing about the intimate relationships you have in your life. It's so funny. As soon as you said that line about not going to grad school out of boredom, I had a flashback to that big brother, little brother episode of the Simpsons where Homer is asked like why he wants to become a big brother. And the the options are like spite, boredom, one-upsmanship. And that's it. Um, I, I, I think that's all really, really useful and, and really worth considering for this letter writer. I also wanted to say, you know, letter writer, if you say that you consider your only, your partner, your only real family and your closest friend, and you want to keep them in your life, to me, that's like, do that. Like, absolutely. If you want to keep this partner in your life, you do not have to break up with them just because there's some incompatibilities that may or may not be a big deal at some point in the future. You might still end up breaking up someday in the future. I, I can't promise you that you never will. But like, if you just really feel like, I love my partner, I want to stay invested in each other in a big way, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that that's my priority. Tell your partner that, make that clear, do your best to prioritize it. I think that's absolutely fine. I, I think I, you know, Ty, I share your kind of first reaction, which is it does really seem like the letter writer wants friends. And, you know, I know that you say that you struggle to make close friends. And it's, I know lots of people who make their closest friends through romantic relationships. Um, so that's not totally unheard of. That's not like an evil thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's just, mm-hmm. it is also okay, I think, to try to make friends maybe the way that you have sometimes tried to make romantic connections in the past and to maybe say like, I am looking to like tighten the ties that I already have with some acquaintances. I'm looking to like actively go out there and make new close friends. I want to put that at the top of my list right now. Again, I realize that doesn't immediately result in getting like three besties who understand you on a cellular level in the next week, but you can absolutely do that. And you don't necessarily need to go the route of romantic or sexual connections that then turn into friendship. You also can. I just want to point out like there's different methodologies that are all equally possible, interesting, worthwhile, good. Um, And it really just depends on what feels the most immediately accessible to you, I think. Yeah, I I just, you know, I, I do think that it is unfair to the potential partner that you bring in to have these kind of open wounds in your, I guess, primary relationship and to kind of consider how you would feel 
if you started dating somebody who's in an open relationship and quickly learned that that person, you know, has opened up in order to place bandages on things that that make them, you know, unhappy with their relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, which isn't to say like, don't do that. But like, if you're going to start dating someone new and then unload on them about your relationship issues, that's kind of a problem. And I feel that I have an obligation when I date other people or sleep with other people not to make my main relationship problems their problems. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is just as a sign of caution, like if you're looking for another partner in order to vent or work through the things that are going on in your primary relationship, I think you shouldn't do that because I think that's unfair to them. I, I think that's incredibly reasonable to want to point out. And I think similarly then along those lines, um, that that line about I'm partly worried I might find someone else that I want to like be with as a primary partner and then break up anyways. Like on the one hand, yeah, that might happen. Um, that's that sometimes does happen. So, you know, I, I can't promise you that it won't. I can't promise you that won't happen even if you stayed monogamous. You might still bump into someone who just lit you up like a Christmas tree. And so I don't know that there's a way to guarantee that you won't ever meet someone who you feel more excited about than your primary partner. But it it does, I think, suggest to me an interesting possibility. I don't want to be too hard on this letter writer for talking about relationships in terms of like fulfilling a need. I get that that's a really common way to talk. It's not necessarily the same as saying, I only see other people as convenience stores that give me things I need um, and I treat them transactionally and I'm the only real one. But if you think about it in terms of obviously, quote unquote, obviously, monogamous uh, connection is the most important good one. And polyamory is a way of filling in the gaps until I can find a sufficiently good replacement, at which point I would want to dump my primary partner and go off and be monogamous with that person who I would then imbue with the ability to meet all of my needs until someday they let me down and then the cycle begins anew. That I do want to caution you against. Like, Maybe this is a moment to kind of think through, is polyamory actually an ideal of mine? Is it something that I value in its own right? Or do I see it as simply a means to an end of like enough plausible deniability to finding a good new replacement partner so that I can then go back to monogamy? Which again, I don't think would make you like an evil war criminal. I just think that if that's your attitude towards an open relationship, the odds that you are going to hurt other people or hurt yourself or both maybe go up a little bit. So like if, if what you're just thinking is like, I'm willing to do polyamory, but what I really want is someone like my current partner just with more sexual compatibility and future plans, then maybe sit with that question for a little bit longer. If that's really what you want. And like, if you had your druthers, you would do that tomorrow instead of this in-between polyamorous thing. If that just feels like a way to shop around for a replacement goldfish then I would caution you against it, I think. But if you do that like internal work and you're like, nope, it's just a worry that I have sometimes. I do think I would get a lot out of trying this. It seems worth trying to me. Then that's that's reasonable to me too. Yeah, that, that line was kind of, you know, along with the line about this person being your only real family and closest friend, kind of were f- red flag, maybe red flag is the wrong term to use, but you know... <laughs> Gave me an indication that may, you know that you should ask yourself: Do I approach my intimate relationships in a with a very all or nothing mentality? Mm. Am I and can I be receptive to many different um, degrees or shapes of intimacy that 
don't necessarily give me a constant companionship or don't try and fulfill all of my needs. And I know that we all kind of want what we want, but I do really, I think, believe that opening yourself up to many different kinds of intimate relationships that span friendships, sexual partners, lovers, boyfriends, girlfriends, partners, and all the different you know, permutations of, of the ways that we support each other and care for each other. I think being receptive to a multiplicity of intimate relationships, even without structuring it in terms of polyamory, is enriching to one's life. Um, so if you need to change your relationship with your current partner in order to be receptive to those other kinds of intimacy, then I think you should. But I don't think you necessarily need to do so through polyamory. Yeah. And and I think since the question here is really just, can I talk to my partner about this? I want to mm-hmm. say, yes. Like what you're contemplating right now is just a conversation with your partner. You are allowed to do that. And you can say, sometimes I think about opening up the relationship. What do you think about that? And and listen to your partner. You know, there's a lot in here about your concerns, which again makes sense because you're the one writing this letter. But really be prepared to hear your partner's reaction and listen to it and take it as seriously as you take your own thoughts and feelings. And you know, if your partner's reaction is, I would hate that, that's in, you know, that's that's worthwhile information. Um, and if the answer is I'd have some interest and some concerns, talk through those together. Um, you say you feel comfortable bringing this up. So my guess is that your partner is not the type who would be like just deeply upset by the mere possibility of even thinking about it, which is a great place to start. Um, but, you know, the best way you can try to figure out whether or not you two are on the same page is by discussing it. Um, and I, I wouldn't advise you to say like, part of me is worried I'm just saying this because I'm afraid to break up with you because that's tantamount to breaking up with someone and also kind of unnecessarily hurtful. But, you know, really think through, like, if if you were presented with a future where you had your primary partner and you were also dating a couple of other people, and, and maybe it was no longer a primary partner kind of situation. Maybe you had several relationships that were on, like, a similar level of commitment and intensity. And then you imagine another version of your future where you're in a monogamous relationship with someone else and your ex is your ex. Like, which one feels more like a future you want to move towards? Like, you you can't always perfectly know what you want. You don't always know exactly that you want one thing a thousand times more than the other thing, but you might have some useful emotional reaction and that might tell you a little bit about whether or not you are just doing this to get out of a breakup with someone you care about. Um, Because if you think of, wow, if I had like two girlfriends and my current boyfriend, I'd be on cloud nine. That's great information. And if you feel like, actually, if I had two girlfriends, I wouldn't need this guy at all. And that's useful information too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think you're equipped to talk to your partner about this just based off of the incredibly compassionate and loving way that you describe them in this letter. Um, I think this writing this letter was probably great practice for that conversation, actually. And you know, I at the risk of repeating myself, can't stress enough that we are all kind of fed ideas around what our intimate relationships are supposed to be that can really, I think and hurt us um, because they're predicated on like hetero capital misogyny yada yada you know and and this notion that one partner can and should fulfill all of your needs is a fallacious one 
but also that you must preserve a relationship at all costs, even when there are fundamental ways that you have grown apart, such as sexually or in terms of your ambitions and life plans, that you have to do everything you can to maintain it. I think both of those ideas are things that you could disabuse yourself of. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially the stuff about if my current partner isn't fulfilling every single one of my relationship needs, um, I'm not 100% certain that I would enjoy being polyamorous. Again, I don't want to like nail you to the wall with this kind of language that you see in a lot of places, but I would encourage you to think about this less in terms of it's incumbent upon other people to fill my needs and only if they fail to do so should I think about polyamory as a stopgap so much as just what do I think I can offer other partners? What would I want or hope from them? Um, How could I be as honest um, and caring as possible about my needs and limits? And how would I also, you know, look to fulfill others' needs at least close to as much as I hope that they will fulfill mine? Again, I don't want to make it sound like I think this letter writer is this like awful transactional type of person. I know this kind of language is really common. I just, I think if you go into it with a mindset of, I'm just looking to get 100% of my needs met. And whether that's one person or five, that's my only goal. You're probably going to have a rough time, whether you decide to date monogamously or, or not. But yeah, you know, if you're not sure that you would enjoy being polyamorous, you know, how would you decide that you wanted to stop it? Or how would you know whether or not polyamory was part of the problem or whether or not how you were communicating with your partners was part of the problem? These are all questions with with real answers that kind of only you can give yourself. But think through, like, if we try it and I'm not happy at all, what will I do? How will I talk to my partner about it? What will I do if we try it? I'm not happy and my partner's having a great time. Because that might also happen, you know. I think it can be a really lovely and meaningful way to conduct your relationships, but it's also not a guarantee of anything. Um, There's no guarantee that if you both start dating other people that you are going to get the feedback or the candidates that you hoped you would. And sometimes it happens that our partner that we're like, oh, they're okay, but like could be better all of a sudden is like pulling numbers and that can be a head trip as well. And then kind of thinking through how can I like, experienced real joy and happiness for my partner that's not just, you know, jealousy and anger that they're having fun. So uh, yeah, start the conversation, ask yourself these questions, think through it a lot. Nothing's off the table. You're allowed to break up. You're allowed to try dating other people. You're allowed to do both uh, in whatever order works for you or doesn't work for you. And like, Maybe you will break up. I don't know. But I, I think this is all worth discussing. That's all that's on the table right now is a discussion that you think is going to go okay. And so I think you're in, a, you're in a decent place. And I would love to hear back from you maybe in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Love to know how those conversations go, how possible other dates go, how possible other friendships go. Again, you know, you, you can also maybe try polyamory and look for friends at the same time. You don't have to wait until you've decided to start dating to, to prioritize other friendships. So I would really encourage you to put that at the top of your list too. And I think that's all I have for this letter writer. I wanted to add one more thing about polyamory. I, you know, like I, I, intimacy is a practice and doing new forms of intimacy takes practice, you know? Um, and so, yeah, if you do have that discussion and end up trying opening up, be aware that like you're probably not going to nail it the first time, you know, speaking from experience, like I've, you know, been in, I've been in a relationship that's non-monogamous for about five years and it's probably the like third or fourth time I tried being in a relationship that was open 
you know, and I had to learn a lot about myself and be receptive to what I could learn about, you know, my insecurities and my needs and, you know, even some like dark sides of things about myself. Um, And so I do want to caution you that like, if you do try polyamory and it just doesn't work on the first try, don't blame polyamory for that. <laughs> you know, right. It's I, like, it's a real departure from what you've done your whole life. So don't, don't go into it thinking like it's going to be the easiest transition in the world. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really right too. And again, not that I want to feel particularly invested in like making sure lots of people try or, or convert to polyamory, but I do think like, it's it's a it's a little much to expect. Like maybe this will fix the problems with my relationship, and then if it or when really like it doesn't immediately make everything better, then it's like they lied to me. And it's like, did it lie to you, or like did you just go for something a little half cocked and like kind of went a little nuts? And again, like we're allowed to try things and do it messily and like have unreasonable expectations when we date. That's a huge part of what dating is, is having unreasonable expectations of other people and then being disappointed and having to adjust to reality. That makes it sound like a bummer. I don't think that's the only thing. It just means like often our ideals of people are not the same thing as, as reality. But um, yeah, try to think really clearly and concretely about what expectations you have and what you're capable of offering. Um, and don't, don't expect that it's going to be amazing from jump. On a totally different subject, congratulations on being the first only openly gay person to read a book. How does that feel? What was that like? Well, you know, first of all, you know, you're welcome to the whole community. You're welcome. You know, it was a really big struggle, but, you know, I did it. How many letters are there, like, in the alphabet? So far? Start to finish. So far, about 20. I don't know. We're not sure about why. We're not sure about why. Of course. Pretty weird one there. Pretty pretty straight one. I think we have to interrogate the heterosexism built into the Y vowel debate, you know, but definitely 25. Definitely. Yeah. At least, right? Or at most. At least. At least. <laughs> We're looking at the Greek ones first. But really, what is it like? To be the first open the gay person to read a book. I actually was going to say like the actual book club itself. I was ready to like drop the oh. conceit, but um, <laughs> I'm happy to keep going with it too. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I just started it recently. I really like Substack for its, uh, like, just design, um, you know? And so I don't charge. I don't have a paywall up on my Substack. Um, and I did do a series of newsletters a few years ago called the Pro Bottom Book Club that was not actually a book club at all. It was, I guess, a makeshift sex column for just myself that included whatever I was reading at the top of it. Um, and I have just kind of like run out of things to say about sex, um, you know, and I'm just in a different place in my life um, from when I was writing that. But I did, you know, get a lot of encouragement um, from that. I ended up writing a paid sex column from that. And so I just figured I want to keep up my writing practice and keep sharing my writing and thoughts with people in a casual you know, low stakes kind of way. And so I created the first openly gay book club to share what I'm reading along with the context in which I'm reading it. Um, And so far, it's been really enjoyable to uh, share and get feedback from people. That's lovely. You've conquered the body, now the mind. 
Then you'll solve the problem of mind-body dualism, which... Eventually the ghost. (laughs) Eventually the ghost in the shell, and then we'll be done. That's going to be fantastic. Um, Well, that sounds beautiful. I hope you spend a year on The Talented Mr. Ripley, because I would love to hear every single one of your thoughts on my favorite nightmare, Patricia Heisman. Oh my God, so many book recommendations when you start a book club. Jesus, it's like I can only read so much. That is the problem, isn't it? Is Of course, as soon as people hear that, they say, here's what you should read next. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, Let me try again from a posture of curiosity. What are you reading right now? I just finished Connor Habib's Hawk Mountain, um, his debut novel, and it is exceptional. It is stupendous. I was really gagged. I'm not even saying that because Connor's my, you know, other mother besides Eric Sheether. Um, <laughs> you know, Connor has been like a friend and a very supportive person for a while. And, you know, of course I bought his book. Um, and I didn't expect reading it for it to be just like full of gags, goops, and gobsmacking. I hope that's the blurb. <laughs> so I just finished that. I think next I'm going to be reading a Clarice Lyspector book. Very exciting. Mm-hmm, very exciting. Very I like exciting. to kind of go back and forth between like new stuff and stuff that I, you know, wish I'd read like back in college or something like that. Like I read Mrs. Dalloway like a few months ago and that was the first post on the book club. Um, and it feels a little silly. And I mean, I wanted to demonstrate that I can like, I like writing book reviews. I just also, you know, if I'm not getting paid for it, I'm not going to do all the research involved in writing a book review. (laughs) Yeah. I have been so proud of myself because after at least five years of trying to read Middlemarch, I just finished reading Middlemarch. Wow. Um, Slay yes, mama. It's been, it's been so thrilling because it was genuinely a book where like, I truly have enjoyed every time I reread the first hundred pages. And I, it wasn't a case of like, oh, I feel obligated to finish this book. It was genuinely just like, I love this book. And yet I keep getting stuck and then drifting away. And uh, it felt really good to finish something. And especially when that something is, you know, a, an incredible novel about provincial life in the 19th century and the human condition. Um, so I'm just going to be coasting off of that one for the rest of my life. You earned it. I did. It's a long book. It's, you know, you should get a little badge. I did read Anna Karenina a few months ago, and that made my brain feel so big. I still feel the same way Linus Van Pelt does about all those Russian novels, which is just like, I have to make up names for them in my head um, and then just bleep over the names that I can't understand. They're too long. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) This one is probably Kira Knightley. <laughs> I could do that. I could watch the Kira Knightley adaptation. I have I have enough attention for that. Just think of um, all the women in the book as Kira Knightley. <laughs> that actually completely works, and I'm going to do that from now on. Do you want to end on a slightly quicker, lighter note? Sure. He said, obviously. So our last question is really sweet and from someone who just wants to tell him to mask up, which I think is very funny because you've got a water bottle the size of a cat. Um, And I was talking about how I swoon when a lesbian who works inside of a kitchen tells me I have a nice shirt. So I'm not sure how successful we'll be, but like I can kill bugs. I can be masked. I can do it. I hung up a shelf once. Sure. That's amazing. I, um, I... Badly repaired something last week for the first time in my life. I used a screwdriver successfully. So I think I'm qualified. I think you're qualified. You're certainly hydrated. You've got your shirt tucked in. You're a professional adult. I'm ready to do this. So the subject is can't take the heat. 
I'm a non-binary trans mask, mid-30s, white, auntie, had top surgery. I'm out both personally and professionally, think social media posts. But of course, there are people who either aren't aware or just don't even try to use my pronouns or refer to me as a mom, ladies, etc. I'm so fucking bad at correcting people and basically just never do it. I know this is such a basic question and I just need to practice doing it, but it also feels like it would just be so much easier to never discuss my gender with anyone. Tell me to mask up, question mark. I love the the end too, where it's just like, I need to be told to mask up so badly. I'm not even willing to make this request as a statement. I got to say, tell me to mask up if you don't mind any of the time, which is very charming. Mask up. Yeah. Do you think that's this letter writer's problem? Do you think that it's like Man, just insufficient a, masculinity going on or? It's a funny turn of phrase post COVID. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Sorry. What What is the... What was the main question besides tell me to mask up? So the question is just basically like, I'm non-binary trans-masculine. I'm on hormones. I've had top surgery. I've come out. And yet there are people uh, who refer to me in like a group setting as part of like, hey, ladies, or they'll call me a mom. Uh, and, and I just don't even say anything. I don't correct people. I don't ask them to try again. Nothing. But I, I feel that I should or I would like to. And maybe that's part of the open question too, is whether or not like, do I want to in those situations? Do I feel guilty about not doing something else? Do I feel like I'm supposed to in order to be like a good trans-masculine subject? And so maybe part of the question here is like, do you just find it easier not to say anything? And would you like to continue with that for a little while? Like, do you think that that's a possibility for our letter writer here? I mean, obviously, like my first question, letter writers, like, are these just strangers for the most part? Are these people you see at work? Are these people that you come into contact with a lot? Because I certainly don't correct strangers uh, who call me ma'am if I'm never going to see them again. And some people do, and that's fine, but I just don't want to have that kind of interaction with a stranger. I'd rather just move on with my day. And so given that that's where I'm coming from, if you need permission to say like, don't correct a cashier who calls you ma'am with a clear conscience. By all means, don't correct a cashier who calls you ma'am. Just, you know, feel weird and move on with your day. Or don't feel weird. I mean, I think realistically, you know, pushing yourself to like inhabit gender norms that don't come naturally to you is going to probably make it even more frustrating when people will misgender you. I don't mean to say that like, tough break, you're going to get misgendered, but uh I don't think that like masking up is going to solve this problem. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think part of the masking up thing was maybe a little tongue in cheek, but I do just really want to stress like, if you were writing this letter, letter writer from like a trans feminine perspective, it would still be important to think about how do I want to talk to people who don't gender me the way that I would like to be gendered uh, in a way that I would not say like you're being insufficiently womanly. So maybe. Again, I I know that some of this was tongue in cheek, so I don't want to be like, you need to like get rid of these bad ideas about gender. But like some of this might actually just speak to not that you're insufficiently masked, but the the problem is maybe that you don't have enough support in your life right now. And the fear is if I did start speaking up a little bit more, I'm worried I'd get a lot of pushback. I'm worried everyone would act like I was asking for something totally unreasonable. I'm worried that I would get painted as like a weird troublemaker. And I'm weird. I'm worried that it would expose how few people in my life affirm my gender in a way that I can kind of pretend they do if I don't make waves. 
And so maybe that's part of the question that you want to ask yourself here is like, do I have enough trans people in my life? Am I getting enough support of the kind that I need in my life? Who are the people who do gender me reliably? And am I telling them often enough and in enough detail about what I want from the world at large to get the kind of support that I need? Yeah, I'm trying to stay in my cis lane, but I think, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a delicate balance between like, what is going to be more work here? <laughs> you know, like you're saying, it's like, if it's, Strangers you're seeing one time versus if it's people who you, you know, work with or, you know, engage with on a regular basis. I, I don't, you could be, you could just as likely be overestimating how intrusive it would be as you would be, you know, underestimating it. Like you, it might not go the way you think it is. It'll go, you know, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think really just like to this letter writer, you know, if there's people who aren't aware and you're going to be talking to for more than 30 seconds, I think the best way to go about it is just to say, oh, it's they actually, or oh, it's he actually. Um, and to say it in a, a just totally neutral voice, uh, to not get into it if they want to try to like apologize too much or make too big a deal out of it, just stay like really affect-free or at least as much as you can and just say, oh, it's this. Like as if you're correcting someone on what day of the week it is. Like just really neutral information. If it's people who don't even try, in that case, my guess, it, it is probably someone you're a little bit closer with. Um, and that is a slightly bigger conversation to be had. And so again, I would say maybe start first talking to people that you know you can get support from and ask for their like backup. Just knowing you have somebody in your corner might make it a little easier to say, hey, it's they. You don't use they. Would you try, please? But again, you say like, you know that it's just a question of practicing. So are there people in your life you can practice safely with? And what would you do if you tried it in public and it didn't go the way that you wanted? How would you kind of like bounce back from that? And then just, again, if you need permission to sometimes let it go with strangers, by all means, you never have to like have a discussion about your gender with a, you know, somebody on the bus or somebody at a coffee shop. You can just let that shit go forever. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can cut yourself some slack. Like what we're talking about demands a like great deal and constant amount of social deftness that we don't expect of cis people um, and that is okay to like falter or lose your steam over every now and then and doesn't make you the like annoying trans mask. You know, managing those situations at all takes one practice and, you know, to like, you're going to run into personalities, you know, and it sucks. And I'm not saying it's like a good thing or an okay thing that like, the world is like that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, cut yourself some, stand yeah. up for yourself, but cut yourself some slack, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it is true that if, if you want to correct people who have been like making a mistake, the only way to do it is to offer the correction. But it is not true that the only reason you get misgendered is because you're insufficiently masked and you're not doing a good enough job of like walking down the street, snapping and throwing finger guns and saying, it's he. Like, if you were just sufficiently masked, you would just be able to command people um, into treating you, like, with respect and affirmation. And at least in some of the instances you've described, it sounds like people know that you're out and they're just fucking up. And, like, that's a shame. That's, like, whether ill-intended or not, that's some transphobia. But you didn't uh, invite that transphobia by failing to be, like, a cool macho kind of guy. That's just because we live in a transphobic world. And you should cut yourself a little slack when you're trying to navigate it and figuring out what fights are worth having or what discussions are worth having. And especially if you feel like the, the a discussion is a fight, then that's a long road to try to traverse. So I would say, like, keep your expectations modest, 
start small. It don't feel like if you're going to correct one person today, you have to do it every day for the rest of the week. Do a little, little bit. See how it goes. If it just feels awful, you know, lay off it for a while and just make sure you're getting support from somewhere else. So uh, I'm sorry. I feel like I have not given you exactly what you wanted, which was like a crash course in forced masculinization. But there are people out there who will do that for a reasonable fee. Um, and I, you know, I hope you find a lot of wonderful support. Ty, thank you so much for um, being so wise and so literate. Thank you. And the same to you. You could... I'm, I'm ready. Sorry, I got flustered on the on the mask up question. Has anyone ever asked you to, to, to teach them how to mask up before? Was this the first one for you? You know, I guess they haven't, which makes me feel good about my relationship to masculinity. I have had someone ask me if I could tell they were trans, which is... <laughs> That's a dangerous question. <laughs> right. I, I must have been like 18. Um, and so maybe that just flashed me back to that. <laughs> does it, feel, it does feel like if, if there was like a bad cheesy sitcom about trans people and the way they were like bad cheesy sitcoms about just like cisgender roles in the day, it would just be like, Never answer a question if your wife asks if these slacks make her look fat. That's like, never answer someone who asks if you can tell that they're trans. <laughs> In a perfect world. <laughs> In a perfect world. But um, yeah, I guess my last thought for that letter writer is, you know, is it mask or is it like affirmation, autonomy, self-respect, the ability to speak up about your own needs? Um, not to be all... Those can belong to someone of any gender, but they really can. So again, I, I realize you are probably choosing your terms slightly lightly, but you do not have to be mask in order to offer a gentle correction on your own behalf. You don't have to be mask in order to, you know, ask people to gender you appropriately. If you want to do those things and be mask, you should. It's wonderful and attractive, but you don't have to. And that's all I have for anyone today. I hope that helped because I'm done. Same. I think Great. we were super helpful. I think. We landed on just the right mood. <laughs> I also love deciding that I was really helpful at the end of every episode because it feels good and no one can stop me. Ty, thank you so much uh, for teaching all of us how to read. And I look forward to having all of your moms on the show in the very near future. Thank you so much. It's been a lifelong dream to be the on first openly podcast. gay advice giver. Good, good. I'm glad. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. If it helps to just begin with, you're not slow. Um, Someone took advantage of your youth and trust. The fact that you were young and trusting is not a mark against you. It does not mean that you should have been like a secret detective at 13. It means you were 13. So to whatever extent you can try to remind yourself of that when you're tempted to think, I'm slow, I'm dumb, you're not. You are not complicit. You were abused. And now the person who harmed you is trying to have fun little reminiscences with you at work. None of this makes you complicit any more than it made you dumb. It, it just means that you're being sort of like newly brought into an awareness of the way that somebody hurt you. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.